Welcome to the Food and Faith Podcast, conversations from the soil and around the table with your co-hosts, Anna Wolfenden, Derek Weston, and Sam Chang. Welcome back to the Food and Faith Podcast. This is Derek Weston, and today's guest might be familiar to longtime listeners of the show. Gary Nabon was the keynote speaker at the Wake Divinity School's Conference for Food, Faith, and Ecology. That series was called Ecotones of the Spirit, and Sam and Anna recorded it back in the summer of 2019. I highly recommend you check out those episodes as well. But as for today, Gary and I had a chance to talk about his new book, Jesus for Farmers and Fishers, Justice for All Those Marginalized by Our Food System. It's a phenomenal book, and I highly recommend it. Gary is an ecumenical, Franciscan brother, a seed saver, agroecologist, and agrarian activist. A former MacArthur Fellow, he has been called the father of the local food movement by Time Magazine. He currently holds the W.K. Kellogg Chair in Food and Water Security for the Borderlands. An Arab American, he has engaged with farmers and refugee farm workers in Lebanon, Egypt, Palestine, and Oman. Gary keeps orchards and gardens and greenhouses at his home in Patagonia, Arizona, then fishes and forages from an old adobe house on the shores of the Sea of Cortez in Mexico. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Gary Nabon, and if you've been appreciating the work we do here on the Food and Faith Podcast, you can support us by going to patreon.com slash food and faith podcast. Every little bit helps. Okay, here's my conversation with Gary Nabon. All right, we are here with Gary Paul Nabon. Gary, welcome back to the show. It's great to be with you. We always ask the question to begin with, um, what is your geography? But we've asked you that question before. Uh, you've been on the show and we, we've, uh, we're going to make sure that people uh, check out the episode that you were on before when you were here with the uh, Ecotones of the Spirit series. Um, so I'm interested, um, having gone through the pandemic, um, have you had any new reflections on your geography, either the geography that shaped you growing up or the geography that you're in now? Well, well, thank you for that question. It's uh, what my last year has been immersed in mm. in a number of ways. Uh, I live near the U.S.-Mexico border, which is the border in the world with the greatest disparity in income for families and access to healthy food. And so people uh, 15 miles south of me that do the same work that I do or that a mechanic in our Arizona community does get paid one-tenth of the people doing the same job on our side of the border. Mm. And there's a lot of farm workers and food service workers who come across the border every day, and they were really struck hard by COVID because they were exposed to both countries. And uh, the borderlands after Mexico City itself were the worst places to be for COVID in the first few months. And my wife and I also have a home uh, in an indigenous fishing village on the Gulf of California, and no doctors showed up there for the first three months. And so we went into action to work on COVID prevention there. And thank God, not a single person has died directly of COVID there because of an incredible confluence of traditional indigenous medicine and the very best uh, possible treatment that my wife could work with a crew of 16 uh, nurses and herbalists to provide to people. So we were doing... um, COVID prevention and food security work together 
during the entire year and a half that we've really globally gone through this uh, pandemic crisis. Wow. And and I I just kind of imagine that with this book, uh, Jesus for Farmers and Fishers, kind of fresh out into the world that you must have had um, such incredible reflections on how how very pressing the writing that you you just released into the world was when you're seeing these communities. That's that's right. The people, uh, the Konkak or Seri Indians, about 1,200 people of an endangered language are not agriculturalists, they're fishermen. Mm. But everything that Jesus was in dialogue with the Galilean fishermen was happening to them at that moment. Uh, The control of the whole global fisheries by long-distance marketplaces collapsed, and they lost 40 to 70% of their income from fisheries Almost instantly, no seafood restaurants in tourist areas uh, in the Mexican beach towns or uh, in Southern California and Arizona. And so the the kinds of stresses that Jesus of Nazareth saw in his time in Galilee were very similar to what we saw this last year and a half. What do you think, COVID, what are the lessons that we should learn about our food system and the vulnerability of our food system from the pandemic? Well, as Jesus, through his parables, confronted the empire, which we would call the globalized economy now, um, we know that we want to see more local control over the destiny of the food that leaves fishing villages or farming villages or even urban farms. And uh, yet during times of crisis like the pandemic where our transportation system was all cattywampus, if you want to use a polite word, and uh, uh, there was not certain goods coming into their village because no fruit peddlers or or um, back of the truck salesmen came into their villages. Um, they're as part of the globalized economy as we are. And so um, there's a lot of inequities, both in the cost of food and access to healthy food that happen to all of those that whether there's a pandemic or not, we really have to strive collectively to deal with so that uh, the people at the end of the food supply chain and at the beginning of it, the producers are not the most vulnerable and the middlemen make out with all the food. Hate to sound like a Marxist because I'm not, but I'm really concerned that that the people who give us our daily bread are the most vulnerable uh, to food insecurity and the most likely to use food banks in our country that was one in five or one in six of all Americans grew on food banks and soup kitchens this year. Yeah. Thank you for that. And I I think it's, it's, it's absolutely crucial that we start thinking about ways that we make our food systems more localized and, 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 and more accessible to those who are vulnerable. We've probably put a little bit, a little bit of the cart before the horse here. Um, We, we, uh, kind of jumped into talking about some of the substance of the book without really introducing the book. Um, and you did you did do some of some introducing of Jesus for farmers and fishers, justice for all those marginalized by our food system. When you uh, spoke at the Ecotones of the Spirit um, 
gathering for for the Wake Forest gathering a couple of years ago. Um, and at that time, this, but this was a couple of years, it was a year or so before the book was published. Um, talk to me, uh, you know, I'm, I'm uh, Anna and I are in the process of working on a book. So, you know, I'm very interested in, in, in thinking about uh, the, in, in learning about the thinking that's going into uh, what brings a book to life and, and what put this book on your heart. So what were sort of the origins of Jesus for Farmers and Fishers? Well, Derek, like you and Anna are probably doing now, you're talking about the content of the book, both with friends, what you're working on, and uh, maybe through a little bit of preaching, uh, trying out the performance art of some of the stories that will be in the book. And that's exactly what I was able to do at Ecotone of the Spirit. I'd already been doing a deep meditation, almost like a prayerful trance on the topic for two or three years. But I was in isolation, like a lot of us have been in isolation again this last year and a half. And it was just this wonderful outpouring of um, remembering that the storytelling itself um, helps us find where we're going on our path. And we are all concerned about uh, racial and, and ethnic and gender justice, but we know that, that it's, it's just such a deep and diverse problem in all of its faces that somehow we have to step back now and then and see the connective tissue that what happens to uh, uh, black farmers and farm workers in the Southeast is the same as what happens to Central American uh, farm workers and food service workers in the Northeast and Mm -hmm. down where I live in the U.S. Southwest. It's not only... uh, Mexican farm workers and food service workers, but those from uh, eight other countries in Latin America. Haiti is now one of the largest contributions to the immigrant workforce in Arizona, and 22 other countries, largely those that people don't suspect that the refugees end up in the desert Southwest. Hmm. But we're grateful to have them here because they know desert farming well, the people of Hmm. Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, uh, Palestine, uh, Egypt, Ethiopia, and Eritrea, who've all had terrible troubles in their own lands, but we welcome them to our lands because their skill sets may help us get through this climate challenge. Mm. Uh, you know, and I, I, I'll have to admit, I never, I never put that together. That we have created refugees in places like Iraq and Afghanistan, and and them ending up in southwestern United States to do that kind of agriculture. I, I actually hadn't, I actually hadn't pieced that together. Um, and but it makes complete sense that they would be the ones kind of helping us figure out how to get through that. And, and, and that's going to be something that as climate change continues, we're going to need to know even more of how to do that. That's right. What we know is happening in several countries that are bringing people to our doorsteps is what uh, social scientists call triple exposure to warfare 
climate change and globalization all happening mm. at the same time. And we could say that happened when my family left Syria 100 years ago, a, a locust plague, a drought, and the Ottoman war uh, with uh, World War II on its heels, all hitting people at the same time. And that's what happened to my Syrian cousins mm. the last five years. That's what's happening in Yemen. That's what's happening in Ethiopia and Eritrea. So whether it's uh, people we call Asian or African or Middle Eastern, uh, they're bearing the brunt of climate change and people fighting proxy wars in their farmlands. In other words, some of them are pacifists, prayerful, prayerful people who are not taking sides, but are caught up in the midst of these proxy wars between Saudi Arabia and Iran or the United States and Iran that are literally displacing millions of people. The area that my family is from in Lebanon on the Syria border, there's one immigrant from Syria and um, Iraq, one refugee for every Lebanese-born citizen there. So a one-on-one -on -one relationship of refugees to long-term residents. And that would be tough to deal with in any place in the world. Yeah. I mean, one of the conversations we have pretty frequently on this show is how there is a food component to all of the justice issues that we we discuss and what you're highlighting for us right now is the food component to war the that war affects our our food system and i think that's something that we don't think about we don't think no. about the way that our 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 wars around the around the globe affect our food system eric i I don't think I've even said this since the book came out, but the most heartbreaking thing for me personally that I'm on the edge of tears with now is to think that the homelands, that the rest of us call the holy lands, uh, Palestine, Israel, Egypt, uh, uh, Jordan, and Lebanon and Syria, where Jesus walked. Jesus walked within 10 miles of where my family is from on the Lebanon-Syrian border, are now some of the most um, impoverished landscapes in the world because of decades of sporadic wars and the drought and usurpment of water and other resources by the uh, invading nations that affect the people who continue to try to live there decade after decade. So the holy lands in this book, as well as in our life and times, are some of the most uh, poignant examples of the dynamics we're talking about. Mm. Yeah. So one of the things, um, again, another kind of common thread in, in, in our conversations on this show is that I think there's a growing understanding that we don't fully grasp the the context of our biblical text 
without really understanding food systems. And your book highlights that in such an amazing way. Um, and, and I, uh, I would just love to hear from you. What, what do you feel like we miss in the, in the reading of the Bible, disconnected from our own foods, by being disconnected from our own food systems? Yeah. Well, of course, I worry and am saddened by the fact that we have a, a gap between uh, people of faith and science in some places mm. in the United States, because I think the kind of science or natural history, really, that I try to weave into the book is not at all disrespectful of or contrary to uh, the the spiritual messages in the book. I'm not, yeah, not at all. pitting science against faith in any way. It, to the opposite, we know that parables by their very nature have multiple layers. My interpretations of the parables, knowing palpably from my own experience as a desert ecologist and farmer, uh, the, the nuances of those plants and animals embedded in the farmlands and fisheries there, I think enrich what we see in the parables, but they're not the whole answer. There's other eloquent, eloquent uh, unpackings of the parables that have been given by every preacher over the last 2000 years. So I'm not saying that my way of looking at the parables in any way replaces them. But for example, uh, that we now know that uh, when, uh, Peter was told by the tax collectors, give me some coins. Your, your teacher has been preaching in the streets. And Peter says, what do you mean? Uh, those uh, those uh, tariffs on, uh, or taxes on preachers are only for the ones in the synagogue. He was really bullied and told, wherever he's preaching, we need you all to cough up some money. And Jesus, rather than feeling disheartened or or attacked by the tax collectors, said, let's transcend their way of looking at the world with the way we look at the world. Go to nature and find what we need to give them. Uh, uh, go to where your brothers and cousins and uncles are, are cleaning fish right now and see if any coins come out of the catch. And at first they look at him like he's gone off the deep end. We're going to the baskets of fish to look for the money to pay off the tax collectors. And then they remembered that when they were young kids, occasionally they'd see a coin pop out of the mouth of a, of a tilapia, a different species of tilapia than what we eat in the U.S. that are specific to the Galilee. But that's because um, they do this brood feeding thing where mothers take their babies into their mouth and then put objects like rocks or coins in the front of their mouth so that predators can't come in and prey on their babies. So it's this very moving image of being cradled in your mother's mouth. Mm -hmm. Wow. Is that cool or what? <laughs> um, but it was really that Jesus connected them with the abundance of the world right before them that we all forget about whatever the issue is we feel we feel like someone's getting a bigger cut of the world than we are and that we're struggling and that we can't find the resources to make ends meet and yet some of those resources are in abundance right before us and jesus had a way of flipping the narrative from 
uh, one of people fighting in competition for scarce resources to broadening our perspectives to the incredible abundance of human talent and skills and uh, nature's gifts to us. And so that's a remarkable thing that he does in many of the stories that I talk about in the book. Yeah. I love the way that, um, as you've said, you you have used um, the scientific research that you've done not to in any way detract from the the spiritual lessons that these parables have to offer, but but to to really enhance them. I mean, there are things here um, when you talk about the large catch of fish and 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 when you talk about the coin and when you talk about uh, when you uh, the parable of the sower, um, there there are all of these uh, things that feel like, I completely missed that because there was this piece of scientific knowledge I didn't have about the region or about or about the the species that were interconnected in Jesus's world that just brings the scripture to life in a completely new way and it it, it makes it makes the book a phenomenal read but it also it also makes you go back to the scripture and read it a completely different way. Yeah. And I want to make a point so that your listeners who haven't looked at the book know that I'm not coming at the stories of Jesus purely as a scientist. What I'm saying is that the natural history of those fish or that of the early springtime figs that have no seeds in them, Mm. but that are still producing a virgin fig or the stories of where the fish are hidden by the seven springs where Jesus told Peter and his uh, family to cast out their nets after uh, night after night of, of nothing arriving in their nets. Those are all things that were known because people didn't have TV and internet then. They were observing the natural world and talking about it in the evenings over campfires of every little detail of nature that was of interest to their community. And that oral history, not science, the oral history of nature around them is what the parables were built on. And we're impoverished in the sense that many of us grew up in urban areas where we didn't have a full um, exposure to that kind of oral storytelling that spanned generations of farmers or ranchers or sheep herders or gardeners or orchard keepers. And so uh, the real depth of the book isn't from something that science adds to it. It's us refinding in our own cultural traditions and in the cultural traditions of the uh, diverse peoples of that uh, time, the Samaritans and Phoenicians and Nabataeans and and Jews and and, um, Samaritans, of course, uh, being prominent in some of the stories. That, that they all had their different cultural oral histories of the place they lived in. And Jesus's storytelling drew upon those. He was an eclectic reader of the world around him. It's yeah. so funny that we talk about him or St. Francis of Assisi as, well, it's not clear that they were literate, as if uh, the scriptures are only the Bible and not the oral scriptures of your culture. Mm-hmm. Mm. that the rabbis passed out, or as many uh, theologians have said, nature is the original uh, 
scripture, the, the open book that we can ignore at our peril or that we can uh, deeply tap into as a source of wisdom. Yeah, yeah. You're talking about some of the, the fish stories. You say Jesus had the astonishing capacity to remind all of us of the presence of precious but hidden treasures in the natural world. These gifts are already in our midst, but are often ignored or dismissed by us. And further down, you say in doing so, they put their faith. Jesus and Simon could cleverly meet the bureaucrats, uh, as we're talking about this story with the coin, preposterous demand with an altogether improbable, if not wondrous solution. In doing so, they put their faith in the abundance found in creation itself, the very expression of their creator's bounty that was everywhere around them. It transcended the man-made wealth of the Roman economy. And I, I, I love that. The idea that there is a bounty to be found in nature, that there's a bounty to be found in our, our abilities to interact with the natural world that completely flies in the face of empire, completely flies in the face of the systems of oppression that are around us. And I, I, that, that's a beautifully expressed, I think. Yeah, I feel the same way that, that you do, that that passage is sort of key because it reminds us that what miracles are, are aren't any sleight of hand. You know, one minute, the basket of fish, I mean, the basket is empty of fish, and a second later, it's full of fish that remain filling up the basket even after 5,000 people have been fed. Like it's a magic trick. <laughs> the magic trick isn't part of the story. The miracle is our change of perception to see the world in a different way that Jesus' storytelling triggers that in people and allows us to see the miraculous lives all around us. It can be allies rather than enemies or can be active players in the drama of our own personal lives rather than scenery on a on a stage it's in other words those fish and those figs and the sheep are active players in our own lives mm. and certainly in the lives of the Galileans yeah yeah I wanted to come back and ask another question, sort of a, a writer question. Um, you have these really beautiful translations of the parables in your story, uh, in your book. Um, and and I'm, I'm really just kind of curious about the writing of these translations. Um, I'm sure some of them uh, may have been influenced by other works, but I, I'm, I'm really curious about your writing of these translations of, of the parables. Well, well, thank you. Um, and of course, there's incredible scholarly work on uh, the Gospels and the parables that, um, you know, I'm, I do not stand alone in, in my interpretations of them. There's centuries of, of wonderful work to draw upon. But I took two things into account that I don't think most uh, people that work on translation do. First of all, I knew that the King James Version kind of uh, rubbed the detail out of certain um, parts of the natural history in the Bible, because the same plants and animals weren't in Northern Europe, where it was being translated into Romance languages. So uh, the wonderful animal that's like the 
pack rat that we have in the Southwest called the hyrax that lives on the shores of the Dead Sea is confused with other animals like gophers or beavers when it was translated mm. into English. And it, you miss the details of, mm. of why that animal was chosen, just like why fox is chosen as a trickster in European folk stories and coyote is chosen as a trickster or raven in Native American stories. So unless you if you don't have if you don't have a good translation of what those plants and animals are, you can't really get the whole meaning. The second thing is that because my own family is in the area where people still pray in Syriac and and uh, Aramaic um, during their masses, I, I've always been curious about the other Semitic languages mm-hmm. and the core meaning of words that are shared by Syriac, Aramaic, and Hebrew. And so I did a lot of uh, work with dictionaries on on trying to get the core root meaning of that right, not the most recent, what should I say, attempt in a European sense to, to give that in contemporary society. So I was always trying to go back to the the core word in Greek or Aramaic to, to do the translations. And then I said, I, I had to remind myself over and over again, um, uh, Jesus had no pulpit, no uh, uh, bench, no um, uh, raised platform to speak on. He was a performance artist in the streets. He was a street preacher just as much as John the Baptist was. And that the gestures and the cadence of the um, the dialogue between him and the fishers or the farmers was really part of it, that we have to imagine him moving around, coming close to them to make a point, offering them fruit. If you've ever been around Italians or or Lebanese or or Egyptians, the hand gestures are two-thirds of what's communicating that. <laughs> their facial expressions and their words are all complementary. And I tried to remind us that he wasn't transcribing these parables. He was doing it as performance art, as mm. street theater. Mm. And if we grant that wondrous capacity to Jesus as a storyteller, which I think just inevitably had to be there, then we're opening our eyes to the real power of his gifts. Yeah, that's that's such a powerful um it's such a powerful idea i I think that there's so much about some of the western ways of doing church that really sterilize the words of jesus and and takes that theatrical element away from it when when it's clear that that in order for him to have attracted the crowds that he did to have compelled the crowds that he did to have had the following that he had that there had to have been some larger than life kind of charismatic element to his teaching that that really drew people to him yeah you're absolutely right and the other thing that i hope comes through in spurts in the book even though i have deep reverential respect for every word that jesus said is that i think we've deprived him of having a sense of humor Mm. by by holding on to the preciousness of 
every word the way we first heard it when we were five and six, <laughs> and forgetting that some of it is just so hilariously funny in retrospect. We were talking about this the other day, just two things that sort of get mis misinterpreted that are over and over again in the Gospels, like um, those of you who have ears, let yourself hear. You know, there's various ways that that's translated, but it's kind of like talking to a bunch of 16-year-old jocks in a, in, a, uh, in a locker room as a football coach and saying, those of you that have any hormones running through your body right now, I want you to listen up. We're going out <laughs> in a game and we've got to stomp their butts. What, it's, it's, a, it's a way of saying, uh, wake up to your, your full being, you know, mm. those of us you who have <laughs> ears, open them up for God's sakes. You know? <laughs> it's, it's, it's just a wonderful way that I can see everyone smirking in the audience. And the same thing with that great one-liner as he goes off to his solitary retreats, go away and tell no one. Well, mm. the only thing we know <laughs> that history tells us is that whoever was told go away and to tell no one told a hell of a lot of people. <laughs> they were in awe, and that's why we have Christianity. That's right. <laughs> That, that go that go away and tell no one really stuck. <laughs> um, there, there's uh, this is I, I I will just kind of flat out say that I I absolutely love this book and um, there's so many places where where the writing is just just beautiful and captivating. But uh, a favorite part of mine, if you don't mind mind my reading, is sort of a a retranslation and recontextualization of the Beatitudes that you've done. And I just want wow. to read that for our listeners. And you write, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, especially at the margins of the greatest surplus of food in the history of the world. Blessed are those who flip burgers and fast food drive-ins, who fill burritos and taco trucks, and who go from house to house with coolers of homemade goods hidden in their trunks. Blessed are those who patch together their shelters from pallets and tarps. Blessed are those who glean their meals from the produce dumped on the edge of fields. Blessed are those who are famished and fatigued when nightfall comes. Blessed are those who pray for Jesus to arrive with fresh loaves and fishes. Blessed are those who live with the fear that immigration and naturalization service will show up with handcuffs and paddy wagons to deport them. I love that because it it fully brings to life that who Jesus would appear to that who Jesus appeared to in his time are the same people who we overlook in our time because they were overlooked in their time. And, and it brings it home in, in such a vivid way that when we, 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 we see these people and we don't see them, we know these people and we don't know them. We, we are completely dependent on them. We called them essential for a couple of months and then treated them as a, and then treat them as if they're not essential at all. Well, we and treat I just, them as expendable. We treat them as expendable, absolutely. And I, I just found that absolutely captivating, just an absolutely brilliant piece of writing. So I just wanted to kind of read that and thank you for that because I thought it was really fantastic. Yeah, and again, I think that gesture is that Jesus's short, swift time on this earth 
with us in the form that we read about in the Gospels, urges us to see with his eyes everything going on around us today. And I thought of it last night. I was watching uh, the f- uh, one more film about uh, uh, Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X. Mm. And what, you know, where I grew up in Gary, Indiana and saw Chicago, what it felt at that time of people being oppressed, followed, harassed at every point in their lives. And how you know that Jesus's presence, he would opt for that. He wouldn't opt for the Hamptons on Long Island. He'd be in the thick of that. And so why I bring that up is that time and time again, whether it's making reference to uh, the prophet Muhammad or to Jesus or to St. Francis or anyone else, the people living through such oppression says, say, the only way that we've made it is that we don't feel alone. Mm. We feel the Holy Presence with us, sharing in our suffering, uh, giving us light at the end of the tunnel. There's no way that you can go through that terrible, terrific nagging and fear if you don't feel that someone is cradling you at the same time Mm. that will help you make it through it. And so whether it's my relatives in Syria or the families I worked with in the steel mills of South Chicago and Gary, Indiana, um, it, it is not surprising that it's always the poor and most marginalized who have to remind us, <laughs> the rest of us, how much our faith is what gets us through, that, that all the psychotherapy in the world is not going to relieve us from the pain of our suffering as much as that feeling that we're in the presence of the incarnate creator at every step we go and our suffering is shared. They are not alone in their suffering. Yeah. In your mind and in, in, in your thinking about this, what is the church's role in alleviating the suffering of the fishers and farmers? What is, where, where do we, where do we begin to, where do we begin to seek justice for them? Well, first of all, let's give the church's credit for a large role they played over the last century. And that's that the soup kitchens and food banks, which we now have in every city in the country and some small towns and in some cases, every barrio or, 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 uh, tenement neighborhood or whatever, were started by churches, and then the government jumped into the dance and Mm. nonprofits jumped into the dance. So they were the steady hand helping the poor. At at the same time, down on the border where 80% in our of the Hispanics in our county are undocumented. They go to the churches before they go to the government uh, for help because they're afraid if their name is on a a list with their phone number or email in a government uh, data bank, that they're vulnerable in the future because of the vagaries of American politics. Mm. So I think we need to remember that 
churches more than civil society in general have been the sanctuary mm. for the poor and remain so, whether it's Black, Hispanic, poor whites, refugees. It's the, the buck stops here with the churches. And yet we also see in the last 30 years incredible complacency and sort of, I don't want to say static, um, indirect action by the churches. Well, put $20 in your envelope. This will go to help poor people someplace. <laughs> we have to become re-engaged as persons. We have to be in that soup kitchen line next to someone who's just gotten out of jail or whatever. It can't be an abstraction. And every time our churches allow it to be an abstraction, rather than doing what's deep in our tradition, that we have to palpably accompany the, the most marginalized, however you want to define that, gays, lesbians, transgenders, uh, refugees, drug addicts, unless we're there with them palpably, we're not fully engaged in this world, the one that God so loved that he gave his only child to live in with us. And so we have to flip it around and say, do gooding from a distance is not doing anything at all that will change our lives or change other people's lives. It's mostly band-aids. And we have to we have to break out of the complacency, especially in suburban churches. If I want to uh, villainize anyone, I think it's people that have isolated themselves in gated communities. They have the right values in many cases, but it's still an abstraction for them most of the time because they're caring for four kids in the house or a, or a grandmother upstairs. It's not that they're bad people, but the direct contact with the poorest of the poor and the most marginalized is what we all need to be fully alive. And that without that, we're impoverished. We mm. are the ones impoverished. Mm. Yeah, that's so good. And one of the things that I think your book does really well, um, we talk a lot about the brokenness of the food system. And so often we look at the top of that chain. We look at corporations. We look at the government. We look at at these, these multinationals. But at the bottom of those broken food systems are are people with faces, with names, with stories, with hopes, dreams, families, friends, and and your book really calls us to see those people, and and to be with them, and to love them, and to think about them in our in our in our work, and to know them, you know, and 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 I and I love what you just said to know them as more than an abstract, to know them as people. You know, and that was part of the dance of writing the book for me, that I had to go out and be with fishermen, mm. with sheep herders. Uh, I just couldn't grab the statistics from the USDA database, but I had to get a sense of what they were going through, uh, uh, you know, meeting some Peruvian shepherds up in Idaho. And I said, how did you... Uh, what part of Peru did you come from? Did you raise sheep there? And they said, 
what do you mean? We were urban kids from Cusco and we were without jobs. We'd never spent time around sheep. And we responded to this email and got sent a ticket to come. And then we're given a little Airstream uh, trailer 20 miles from any place with a bunch of canned food in it and said, we'll be back in a month. Mm. And until I understood that the story that I'd been romanticizing, oh, this is Peruvian shepherds coming to Idaho. And isn't that a wonderful cultural exchange to realizing that they went into it blind and were as urban as most of us in America, but it was their only option, you know? Mm. So, so to, to go into the fields with people, as Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta did, as um, we, we can name many of our other cultural heroes, Maya Angelou did, that, that got what farm workers are going through, um, is something that that we should be thinking about every time we eat something that they put in our hands. Yeah. Yeah. So we like to end our interviews by asking this question. Um, and I get the sense that you are a, a deeply hopeful person, but uh, what, what is it that gives you hope? Not hope that ignores any of these issues or these systems that we've been talking about, but hope that gives you a resilience to uh, get up in the morning and, and face them and work to change them. I see so many people, whether they're um, 30 five-year duration activists on the front lines of civil rights or their grandchildren, 18-year-old kids that are doing direct action every day, that are doing what the Native Americans along the border call ceremonial activism. They're not responding to the ills of the world with anger and frustration and hatred. They're responding with compassion and empathy and hope. And they're, they're praying their way into the kingdom where we're all kin again, rather than punching their way into it. And I see that activism in this country always had deep roots in spiritual practice, but the, that we're renewing that again today. And so my wife has just done a film called Healing the Border on what tribes one out of the future of the border, where literally their homelands were cut in half by the border. They could be bitter, angry people, but they want something better for their children and grandchildren and all future generations, Indian or non-Indian. And I think what I, I love at this moment in time is that inner city activists in Philadelphia or Atlanta are learning from rural activists in eastern Washington or or Iowa or, or Nevada. We're seeing our commonalities and we're respecting our distinctive gifts. But it's not an us versus them kind of thing anymore. We want the oppression to go away, but we're going to love and pray ourselves out of the oppression with generous acts of resistance and care for one another that will burst that bubble of people 
who get mean and ugly when they're in isolation. Mm. Yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you for that. Where can people connect with you and connect with your your writing and your work? Um, what are some ways that people can access the things that you're you're working on? Well, because of all the problems that Facebook has been having, um, I'm just doing uh, mental telepathy and astral projection these days. But uh, if people want to uh, go to uh, websites, I'm involved in several, one called healingtheborderdisorder.org. Another one that's about uh, caring for creation, in particular, uh, dealing with the extinction of relationships in nature between plants and pollinators, for example. And that's called makewayformonarchs.org. And then the site that has most of my reflections, including my new canicle for all creatures in the time of climate change, uh, a rewriting of St. Francis of Assisi's Canical for All Creatures is simply on GaryNabhan.com. And so that's where I put most of my spiritual reflections. And I just say, I really love what you and Anna and Sam have done with this podcast, because during a time of pandemic and isolation, it's a way that we connect with the deepest places in our heart and the deepest hopes we have. And you keep us all alive and kicking by the way you do this programming. So thank you. Well, thank you. I I appreciate your saying that. And I appreciate your taking some time and speaking with with all of us uh, about your book. And of course, we will uh, make sure that people uh, have a link to find place for Jesus uh, to get Jesus for farmers and fishers, justice for all those marginalized by our food system. I cannot recommend it strongly enough. It's a beautifully written book uh, and beautifully time, beautiful, beautifully timely book. Um, and so thank you for that. And uh, just appreciate all that you have, have offered us uh, in this time. Thanks again. Really appreciate it, Derek. Thank you for listening to the Food and Faith Podcast. Our collaborators are Wake Forest School of Divinity, Plain Song Farm, The Garden Church, and The Keep Until. Editing is by Derek Weston and music by Paul Deemer. Follow along and keep up to date with the podcast on Facebook at Food and Faith Podcast, Twitter and Instagram at Food and Faith Pod, or on our website at foodandfaithpodcast.org. <laughs>